Welcome to the second season of Idiot Soup. I'm your host, Anjali, and each week I am joined by new guests as we tackle the hard-hitting topics that influence modern politics. And we do it our best to make it accessible for people from all avenues. This is Politics by Idiots for Idiots. So whether you're a political junkie and repeated listener or someone who's checking in for the first time, welcome to the family. You're officially an idiot. If you like what you hear during the show, go to our website, idiotsouppodcast.com, or our Instagram, idiotsouppodcast. The rest of our social media handles will be listed at the end of the episode. But above all else, thank you so much for checking in, and we hope you enjoy the episode. So let's get started. Okay, are you ready? Um, of course I am. No, I'm speaking to the audience. Are you ready? <laughs> to rumble. Hello, idiots, and welcome back to Idiot Soup, Idiot Soup. Podcast. <laughs> My name is Dane Sherman. I am your host for the day. Along, you are so not the host. <laughs> along with... My co-host. Oh, wow. I've been, I've been uh, demoted to co-host. It's cute. I only, like... Do the editing and run the website and make the graphics and film the episodes. But yeah, no, I'll okay. This is podcast cute. colonialism. <laughs> oh, so the white man's gonna steal all my hard work. <laughs> okay, so hello everyone and welcome back to Idiot Soup. We're so glad to have you here after our little hiatus. But that's what happens when you crack your skull open, and then your other co-host tells you to record an episode on a format on a platform that corrupts all of your data and loses all your podcast episodes and then you get corona (laughs) so it's been a wild couple of months but we are back and we are ready to rumble and we have a new president which might i say is a little swag um I have been waiting to record this episode. I'm so excited. Um, came up with a genius name while I was asleep, like falling asleep, typed it in my notes phone. So welcome to the idiots in the cupboard. Um, if you don't get the joke, I'm sorry. I can't really help you because if I explain it, that's not funny anymore. But we're going to be taking kind of an overview, like I said earlier today, buffet style look at Biden's cabinet members. But before we do... We are going to talk about just some of our opening thoughts on this uh, cutesy little transition of power that happened. Um, that's a really interesting way to say, like, insurrection. But <laughs> that, that's a fun way to say terrorism. <laughs> it's domestic terrorism, so it's different, Dane. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot's happened. A lot's happened in the country and around in various states and everywhere. So let's just break it down. Like, how is... How was your election season, reaction to election season? Um, oh, yeah, because we haven't done an episode since no. since before the election. No. Um, yeah, so I, I was in my dorm room with all of, like, the RAs and everyone. We were all looking at the screen. And then, like, it was just, like, this horror show where <laughs> it was, like, 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. or whatever. Yeah. And Trump comes out and was like, in fact, we did win this election, <laughs> um, which I think really um, foreshadowed a lot of the events that we saw um, <laughs> on January 6th. <laughs> and those that Where came before were you and after. on January 6th? Um, yeah, no, how about you, Anjali? Um, I, I, you know, to be honest, am really surprised at what happened um i know that like a lot of dc was boarding up before the election but i really really did think that such a long election season was gonna help diffuse a lot of i don't know what word to use but like anger and tension and i thought that um we were gonna run into a little bit less of a terrorist situation. I didn't think that we were really gonna storm the Capitol and breach Nancy Pelosi's office. You're you're surprised though that an egotistical <laughs> um, man who does not give a damn about our yeah. rules of governance and democracy would would care about like a peaceful transition of power. It's just crazy to think that, like, we're living in this moment of history in which, like, yes, there have been riots throughout history, and yes, there has been this type of thing, but it's, like, this was a historical moment, and it's something that is going to be, you know, that picture of that smug-ass man carrying the the podium is going to be in history textbooks. 
is going to be a little DBQ, but it's, um, I don't know. I, I did expect a little, I guess it was my fault for expecting more from the American people and expecting a little more, you know, when Trump was elected, there was a lot of talk about reverence for the office and reverence for, you know, the people who have been elected, regardless of whether or not you agree with them. And then you, you elect Biden and suddenly it's this complete 180 where reverence is not on the table. I mean, like we knew, we knew that a lot of Trump supporters are very hypocritical and, and that's lack of a, a train of logic. But I think that it was just very scary to see how willing to go up in arms and how willing to, you know, put their life like, because to be honest, there should have been a more harsh reaction from the security guards of the Capitol. There should have been a more aggressive reaction because everyone's used the example of if they were BLM protesters, there would have been shots fired and there would have, there would have. Well, and you look at the the rhetoric and the language around um, from the right specifically, but even some from the left right after it happened, it was um, it was a protest. It was a it was a march. It was a <laughs> it was. I mean, but then you talk about Black Lives Matter protesters, and and it's a riot. Um, and the language you use to talk about things is so important. Oh yeah. Um, which is why it is so important to call it what it was, which was terrorism, terrorism, an insurrection, um, an attempted coup, um, like. You cannot go too lightly with the rhetoric on this because of how crucial it is to talk about it in the way that it actually happened. Yeah. And then another um, issue, I think, I don't know, just kind of tangentially related to everything that happened at the Capitol was that yesterday that Texas representative Ron Wright, I think Wright, I don't know know his first name, but it's Texas representative Wright, he had... Uh, he had contracted coronavirus, COVID-19, from the events under the Capitol because when they were in the bunker, wherever they were, um, you know, uh, certain Republican lawmakers were refusing to wear masks. And um, I don't know. It's (laughs) just the idea that you can be in a situation where, like, you are putting other people's lives in danger. And you're all – we were talking about (laughs) today actually how – uh, a situation of mutual peril kind of, you know, has a tendency to like erode the tension between people and erode the, the power dynamics that exist. But even in a situation where like they were in mutual peril, these people were still willing to stick to their political lines and put their peers in danger. And it's just a scary prospect. And I think everything that happened that day is just a mirror of how how divided our um is. And it's scary that like it is the continued politicization is that politicization? Yeah. Politicization of, um, of of things that should not be politicized, like yeah. wearing a fucking mask <laughs> to protect the people around it you. It actually infringes upon my freedoms. It's like my freedoms. How incredibly selfish do you have to be? Yeah. Like I, I do. Like one of my family members, my um, my cousins. Cousins, my cousins, dogs, neighbors, no, friends. It's like, it's like so her, her grand, her, um, her mom that I'm not related to, um, goes to or sw- chose to switch a church that she's been going to for ten years because the church required them to wear masks. It's like, yeah, why, why does this, in, why does saving lives and protecting yeah. other people and even protecting yourself, why is that something that we are still fighting over? <laughs> Yeah, the prioritization, I don't know. It's just, it's to me, and it's like if you can put your, um, everyone you work with in danger when there's something bigger going on, and it's just, I don't know. I don't know. I thought that to me was, I think, a story that went underreported because it happened during a capital siege. But it was a, a moment that I think showed that we often, we often need to hold the ideal that like the people are fragmented, but like there is some hope that like we can work out policies and we can work out cohesion throughout our lawmakers but the lawmakers are just as fragmented as we are and we're kind of stuck in this weird uh unhappy unpeaceful transition phase and it's scary but hopefully um the Biden administration will continue it has a nice trajectory of getting a getting a decent amount of things done they've started to try and get things done <laughs> like, I say things I wouldn't say okay. progressive no but agendas thing, but things, I would say the things they're getting done are undoing yeah. all of the shit that Trump's done. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I don't know if we should wave a flag of like, you're killing it, Biden. When it's just oh, definitely like, not. <laughs> when it when it's just getting us back to normalcy. That's true. I mean, but that that's what you have. The first, you know, 
couple of uh, couple of days ago, even like the first six months of just being in office, especially when you have a, a president such as Trump, who is, you know, came in here with like basically a platform, a basically a populist platform that is completely different than anything that has been in the White House for the past couple of years, and you know, uh, put in place a lot of things that weren't traditionally considered to be like moderate on the spectrum or to considered to be a part of mainstream politics. And so I know like Biden's working, he had put like a, a moratorium on, it's moratorium, right? Or is it pronounced moratorium? It's moratorium. Moratorium, okay, yeah. That's what I thought, but my brain yeah. just broke. No, no, oh. you're good. <laughs> Biden put a moratorium on deportment, uh, deportations, which was, you know, ruled unconstitutional by Texas judges are going back and forth. Um, obviously, first and foremost, he's working on getting the vaccines out. But he got a few other things that he's, you know, trying to make go uh, disbanded the 1776 committee, which was a shucks. Oh (laughs) man. Like what am I going to do? And then now they're really working on getting that stimulus really fill through and trying to, I think there's a provision where they can get about two through. Um, So doing that, but uh, a mask mandate again, obviously. Um, So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not disappointed with what Biden's doing. He's doing what I expected him to do. He's doing a little bit better than what I expected him to do, but I didn't, I mean, like it's clear that he wasn't going to be the big, progressive savior everyone wanted after four years of Donald Trump. But um, he's also not but the I, stick I, in the mud that I thought he would might be. I thought that he was the the heir of Hugo Chavez. Oh, <laughs> my God. He's actually the mayor of Antifa. So Joe Biden was there at the Capitol. You will Antifa. not be safe in Joe Biden's America. <laughs> but anyways – so we have some really interesting people because I think one of the things that's most important, this is like the weirdest view. I truly believe in the power of bureaucracy, not as it stands now, but the reason I love bureaucracy is big so much. Big Congress gal, big Congress The fan. reason I love bureaucracy so much is because I fully understand that even as someone who loves politics and loves political science and foreign policy and yada, 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 I don't know shit about energy or like math stuff or like space stuff or like there are so many technical nuanced things that I think like pure intellect purely intellectual power driven people know about and I think Congress should take advantage of people that are just like experts in their field should Um, (laughs) Uh, but we're gonna talk about Biden's cabinet and he has some really interesting people I think one of the most notable aspects of Biden's cabinet and honestly this is nothing new this is pretty much every damn person whoever gets put on a cabinet there's a lot of repeats, a lot of friendly, familiar faces from Obama and from Clinton, um, which honestly not really worried about because I, Biden didn't market himself as an outsider. Biden never, <laughs> never said up before. <laughs> I, former vice president of the United States, am an outsider. I mean, like, I, I thought it was very interesting to see a lot of, like, high power Washington beltway people in Trump's cabinet only because Trump did market himself as an outsider, did use that populist rhetoric, did try to bring something new and then turned around, reverted right back into the pockets of the Koch brothers. But what can you expect hey. from conservatives? <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, um, so. Yeah. On January 26, 2021, okay. um, by a vote of 78 to 22, um, Anthony Blinken was um, nominated and then confirmed to be Secretary of State. Um, Anjali, hit me with your first takes on Anthony Blinken as our new Secretary of State. So you don't like Blinken. I already know that you don't like Blinken. <laughs> I... Um... I do have one of the things that I really like about Anthony Blinken. Is Anthony that he's Blinken. A dilf. <laughs> he is a dope. Anthony Blinken. <laughs> no, one of the things that I really, really like about Blinken is that he has enumerated his intent to bring, to restore the congressional role in foreign policy. And I think that is one of the most important things. I think that is something that has been lost. Ever since, like literally, ever since Vietnam, it's something that we've just lost up, and through executive orders, and um, there's that uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of the act, but it's the one that allows you to basically use executive uh, use executive power if there's anyone associated with a terrorist state, and that's so vague, and it goes on and on and on. It's how we basically tore up the Middle East. But um, yes, <laughs> I I think. In my opinion, foreign policy belongs to Congress. It belongs to the people. It belongs to whoever is most directly accountable to the electorate. And I, any idea, any anyone who's in favor of returning power back to Congress, I'm a big fan of. Um, even though understanding that it is pretty, it's pretty close this this next four years. It's going to be pretty um, pretty split, fifty fifty. But 
Um, but that is that is my most positive thing that I think of Anthony Blinken. Anthony Blinken is I keep saying Anthony because I just you like Anthony. Anthony does not slip off the tongue, but um, Anthony Blinken. Um, and I'm excited to see, you know, what he's gonna if he's gonna try and push forward any any revocation of any, you know, yeah things that we use. But um, and also cute little thing, he is going to advocate for embassies flying pride flags and LGBTQ flags, <laughs> flags which I think we're, is nice. We're, we're we're not gonna do anything for LGBTQ plus people. <laughs> In foreign countries, but what we will do is fly a little flag. That was my good news. Of the I just think it's cute. I think it's nice. Okay, bye. Um, go gay rights. Hey, you. Do, you. do you want economic reform? Oh, that's so cute. Stop Hashtag it. BLM. You're Hashtag gay your rights. You gotta be quiet. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, right, can so. I talk about Blinken now? Yeah, talk your uh, shit. Bite your. <laughs> I mean, Blinken. Blinken is just. Just avant-gardely one of the Obama administration's veterans. And, like, looking at his record under the Obama administration is, like, not super positive. (laughs) I mean, um, (laughs) he he is just part of the D.C. foreign policy establishment, which has continually um, had this consensus of, like, the U.S. remaining this dominant global power and their willingness to use the military force. That they have for to to maintain that dominance over the world. Imperialism. Hey, (laughs) Um, I mean, just looking at Blinken, who has who was one of Biden's top aides um, when he voted in two thousand two to reauthorize the use of force in Iraq, um, and has just been part of this imperialist mindset that we've seen in that's been getting even larger foothold in the Democratic Party. I mean, I I just don't want to continually look to the same people who took us to war in Iraq um, to be the stewards of our foreign policy and to be the people yeah. who are who are in charge of our foreign policy are the same people that are that took us to war in Iraq. And Say um, say they took us to a war in Iraq one more time. <laughs> they took us. They took no. It's, Guys, it's where did they take us to war? In Iraq. I think Iraq. And where are we still in war? This is true. Like, I mean, I think the thing is though, like, uh, I'm not, I'm just not surprised to see insiders. I'm not surprised to see people that were in Obama's cabinet. I mean, half of it is people that were either in the cabinet or tangentially related to Obama's cabinet, and so I'm I'm not like. I'm not shocked. I mean, I'm not pleased, but I'm also not shocked. I I mean, not being shocked is like, I mean, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't criticize them yeah. for like, yeah, that, that's, that's, that, I just, I'm nervous about Blinken because Blinken has continually um, um, cited on this like global dominance um, agenda and um, is just part of the foreign policy establishment in DC, which I'm not favorable of. Yeah. Um, now switching over to domestic policy, um, let's talk about Attorney General Merrick Garland. Oh, Merrick Garland, this is retribution for you. I mean, like. He got screwed out of being a Supreme Court justice, but here you can be the Attorney General general. for like a little bit. But one of the things I think is so interesting about Merrick Garland is he is very and has been very outspoken that he is very antitrust, which, like I mentioned to you, is super interesting now that Jeff Bezos has announced that he is stepping down. Because I think this is a beautiful, beautiful window of opportunity for Merrick Garland to utilize his role, go in... And take back, take down like just this behemoth of a company that Jeff Bezos has created, and and this huge force um, that Jeff Bezos has created. And I think one of the biggest violators of any type of antitrust law is has got to be Amazon. Um, and so I think that is just going to be exciting to watch. I think um, you know uh, antitrust isn't really a big buzzword anymore. It's not anything people really. You know, we're not, we're not living in the era of robber baron, so no one's really concerned, but we're not realizing that, you know, um, 
these monopolies do dictate our lives and do play a big role in everything we do. I was actually just reading an article about uh, trust in America, and they were talking about how confidence in America has, you know, comes to an all-time low because Americans are less entrepreneuristic, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial, and they're they're more reserved and they don't start any more businesses. And I was like, no, like I. Americans don't start business because we live in a monopolistic system and small business is hard. And small business is the backbone of America, but it's being run out by these monopolies. So I am very glad that Mr. Merrick Garland has been, you know, given a little a uh, little cookie for all his troubles that he went through. Um, I'm sorry that he's not a Supreme Court justice, but um, I'm sure if he was, I'd have a problem with him. <laughs> but but um, I'm excited to see if he tries to take on Amazon. I don't know. That's just... Yeah, and I think I think Garland is a choice that, I mean, is not the worst it could have been, yeah. but also isn't the best. I mean... Other we had to give him something. I know. Other, <laughs> other candidates for it were former Senator Doug Jones from Alabama um, and f- former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates. And, like, both of those people have stronger records on civil, civil liberties issues than Garland. Um, but I think that, as Anjali said, like his antitrust stuff is really encouraging and Garland is way better than any of his immediate predecessors. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. I think, th- I think that Garland is generally a win. Yeah. Um, and then if you didn't like Blinken, you are certainly not going to like Lloyd Austin, who is now was confirmed as the Secretary of Defense. Um, He was in charge of operations in the Middle East when he worked under Obama's tenure. Um, But he's the first black Secretary of Defense. Which is very, yeah. We've got got pride flags (laughs) on embassies, and now a black man is the Secretary of Defense. Well, since so, don't want to whole thing about his cabinet is he's promising to have what is America's cabinet, a cabinet to reflect America, it's, it's cabinet for America. It's supposed to look like America. Something about cabinet in America, and it, but he does <laughs> indeed. If everyone gets confirmed, he will have historically the most diverse cabinet. Than which any, is which is really good. I mean, it, which is, it really is good. something we should strive for. Which is really for. good, but I don't want it to be superficial. I um, don't want no. I don't want it to be the equivalent of Trump being like, oh, this starts with urban. Let me put a black guy in there. <laughs> uh, and, you know, like, I, I want it to be people that can do what they have to do. And so. And, um, and it's not saying that, like, all of these people are extraordinarily qualified. It's yeah. just like his. I mean, I, I think I've seen a lot of memes recently that are like Joe Biden's America might look like America, mm-hmm. but it sure as heck doesn't think like America. Yeah. And. That's the scary thing is that we put these like neolib like <laughs> identity politics things where we're yeah. like we we now have we now have a black man who is the secretary of defense and a woman who is leading so and so department and all of these things which are which are and a gay man leading transportation which is like <sighs> really good yeah but it's also like that um, the identity politics type thing that liberals like to do isn't the change that we're seeking. Yes. And I think that like the mainstream media can get caught up in like trying to say like, Oh, it's this very diverse cabinet. It's, it's incredible, which it is. It is. It's amazing. And it, it, it's terrible that it's taken so long to get these things. But at the same time, it's like, it needs to be doing something. Yeah. It's like, uh, there's a, like the Sue the Sue memes from Glee where it's like I'm gonna do blank. That's there was one that was like I'm going to hire oppressors that are so diverse. Grow <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Oh, but yeah. So Austin is the Secretary of Defense now. The only real opposition to him is that he was not out of uniform for seven years, as was defined by. National Security Act of like 1947 or something. Um, they waived that criteria for Jim Mattis, who also proved to be a crappy Secretary of Defense. But um, one of the things that's super interesting about Austin is he has been called upon by Diane Feinstein and a few other people, and I think he's in uh, you know begun to advocate for the idea of rooting out white supremacy and extremism in the military. And I think, like we were talking about this 
well, earlier actually, one of the things that brought this into the mainstream conversation was January 6th. There was not only a veteran who, you know, sadly passed away. I mean, I'm not happy that she was storming the Capitol, but it is sad when someone passes away and it's sad when veterans pass away. But there was so, there was a lot of veteran presence and, and military presence at that insurrection. And this has led to a more mainstream conversation about why does our, I mean, I can tell you why our military breeds white supremacy and extremism, but, um, but apparently the congressmen are still wondering why it does. Cause, <laughs> cause apparently they don't know. Whoa. <laughs> um, but I think that is a very interesting, you know, goal to reach for a very interesting uh, topic that he has, you know, started to commit himself to and started to talk about. And I'm interested to see where this goes in the conversation. I'm interested to see, you know, how they rework the military-industrial complex to still support imperialism without bringing in white supremacy. And is that something that we can even do? Do we even have a sustainable – do we even have a sustainable army if we remove the nationalism and the, uh, you know, overindulge in the patriotism? And so – I just think that that is an interesting journey for that he's going to take. I don't know if you have any opinions on the military and white supremacy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But just on Lloyd Austin's like record and Lloyd Austin as secretary of defense, I have, I mean, I've, I have things I would say about any of Biden's nominees of like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) like like, it's almost like a moderate appointed them. Yeah, no. Um, But like, I think Lloyd Austin is like the one of the best picks that Biden could have made. And I think that it's really encouraging the things that he is talking about specifically around white supremacy in the military and how pervasive that is. Um, and I think that there should also be conversations um, about sexism and sexual harassment in the military. Yes. Um, and I hope that he will have those conversations because that is another huge problem in the military um, that doesn't get talked about and enough or as much as it should be. Yeah. Okay. So next in the line of succession, please don't use this as a hit list, is Dennis McDonough and or he is the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Well, I, I moved it up. It, it's not. We're no longer following your true. We're no longer following the line of succession anymore. But anyways, we're going to talk about him. Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so McDonough is the second non-veteran to ever will be the second veteran to hold the position, which many, many, many veterans groups are airing their distaste with and they're upset with. And um, however, he has done things for veterans. <laughs> If that's good enough for you guys, um, he was—he kind of like was the he, pushing he force it behind. Game. Oh, oh yeah, you told me that he was the pushing force behind the VA Choice Act, which basically gave them more choices with their healthcare, and also gave the VA more authority to kind of fire underperforming staffers. So that was a good thing that he did. Um, his wife fe- founded a veteran uh, community connections, which is it helps veterans get involved in their communities. So it's not like they're very completely removed from, you know, the veterans community, but he himself is not a veteran, which people have, you know, um, aired their upset with. However, you can't get worse <laughs> than the former uh, Secretary yeah. of Veterans Affairs who tried to uh, discredit a White House aide who had come forward with stories of sexual assaults in the VA and tried to scare her mm-hmm. out of that and tried to hide all that and tried to protect a hospital contractor. So really, there's no way to go but up. Um, so, As someone with multiple veteran grandparents um, who I would regularly like drive to the VA to get um, their healthcare treatment, I... I I'm concerned no matter who is, like, even if they would have nominated the most progressive um, person on the planet. Like, I think that our country does a really terrible job of taking care of our veterans um, in a way that is shameful. Um, And I think that's something that, like, everyone on the political spectrum can get behind and knows. Um, Dennis McDonough, how how do you pronounce it? Um, McDonough, I think. McDonough. He he promises to fight like hell for veterans. And so like, I hope that that's just not empty words and that 
Yeah. A, he can get the funding <laughs> to adequately take care of our veterans. Um, Good luck. <laughs> and that he'll adequately or more than adequately do the job to actually help protect our veterans. Um, and well, I think it's good that he has a history of pushing veteran, pushing legislation through for veterans. And he, I think in this case, like him being a Washington insider is going to be a benefit to the veteran community because, you know, he does have those ties on Washington Hill, like where he can get money and he can move stuff around and he can bridge, um, the gap and he's known for that and so hopefully he can employ that instead of using you know the office as a cushy office which I, I'm not worried about him you know using it as a horrible cushy office but I think that the concerns about him not being a veteran are very valid but I think he'll be able to do a good job. Next Janet Yellen Secretary of the Treasury um I honestly don't have a lot to complain about. She was like, confirmed, right? Yeah, she was confirmed. She was confirmed a couple days ago. Um, like, I, I think Yellen is I, – I think that whoever goes into the Treasury Secretary position would have a difficult time just because yeah. of the nature of our economic crisis at the moment. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to see whether or not she's going to stick to – the stimulus check threshold. Because right now the whole conversation is that it's the Republicans want them thing. to either lower the check number or lower the threshold. And so Yellen is sticking to the 60000 as a threshold for stimulus checks. And Yellen has said that she believes that the government needs to extend extraordinary, she says, extraordinary fiscal support during the pandemic, which is yes. like really encouraging. Um on a tangent of like the stimulus checks and what is so annoying, um, mm -hmm. Biden's campaign of like unity. Um, and I mean, it's great. Unity is great. But when you make the central issue of your campaign unity, then all the other side has to do is say like, you're not like, you're not agreeing with me. So that's being dis, I mean, that's not providing unity. And so like what's happening with the checks is that Biden Biden's administration is like, we're, we're united. And then the Republicans are saying, we're not united because you're not agreeing to lowering these stimulus checks, which provide invaluable support to yeah. lower income Americans. I think one of the scariest things is that the government, like at this time, just simply literally does not have the information for all the tax returns for 2020. So you're looking at a pre-pandemic world. You're looking at pre-pandemic income. And the lower and lower you lower that threshold – the more realistic it is that you will be pushing people further and further into poverty just yeah. because you weren't willing to no. at least wait until you get the tax returns from this year to make your cutbacks. At least wait until you have a picture of what our country looks like and, and who needs the most help and, and where what people have suffered. And so um and like on that to me point, it's just a little scary that they're you know hold, pushing it back and it's just it feels a little tacky. I mean uh, the last stimulus check, my sister, my sister had to have a really big surgery um, that was life saving. And um, but in addition to that, she was facing this economic crisis of like their, her husband isn't able to work as much sometimes because like he works construction. And so there's like yeah. different times for that. And like the pandemic has a made it really hard to make the make money for them. And then has made it so that until the stimulus check came, she was deciding between getting the surgery and then having certain things in her house that like being able to pay the bills, like internet, water, um, electricity. And so like, I think that the is, it isn't, it is so incredibly important, not only that we get these stimulus checks out, yeah. but that they are um, a substantial amount of money because there are so many people who are, who, who are having to make those decisions at this moment between yeah. getting a surgery, paying the water bill, or being able to have reliable internet for their kids to get an education. I mean, it's just a slap in the face to watch congressmen and women debate this and push it off from the cushy seats of the White House Capitol. I mean, I'm not, just the Capitol. Women can be against the working <laughs> class. Girl boss. <laughs> but it, it's just, it's really scary to watch. And um, 
And if you look at how even Trump's policies affected horrible for small businesses, horrible, horrible for small businesses, not allowing them to write certain things for like tax write-offs for their income and stuff. I mean, his response to the pandemic was just condemning small businesses to death, essentially. Um, and I think that I'm hoping that Miss Yellen or Secretary Yellen can help roll back some of that and just bring back, you know. Um, but we have a good bit of we've good bit of secretaries to go through, not so much time. So let's go on to agriculture. Um, we've got some cute things there. Tom Vilsack is the Secretary of Agriculture, who was the former Secretary of Agriculture from Obama and wants to use agriculture to combat climate change. And so basically, he wants to create new markets that pay farmers and foresters to sequester carbon in the soil, funded by credits bought by carbon generators. So this is kind of like sequestering is, I don't know, it's not a new technology, but it is definitely like, this is probably like one of the first times it's been widespread, you know, a national policy to sequester carbon, which is proven to uh, reduce carbon um, output. And so I think that's that's really interesting. He's definitely making climate change his number one policy. He is also the only Obama era cabinet member that served all eight years. However, <laughs> however, get ready to hate him. He was horrible to black farmers in America. Um, there are a lot of loan discriminations when it comes to the USDA, and black farmers were very adamant about him, you know, taking a stand on this, doing something about this, and he just really didn't engage with the community of black farmers. And I think it's really interesting because uh, if you look at like the history of it all from like 1910 to 2007, Black farmers lost 80% of their land. So we already know, like, farming is kind of, kind of like, in danger of being a dying industry. But I, specifically with this demographic, it is, like, a livelihood that is being lost at an alarming rate. And so people know that he has done this. So I'm hoping he is able to walk some of it back. But um, I really want to see him do better with that, starting with the loans and loan discrimination. Absolutely. Um, next up, uh, next up, Secretary of Labor. Um, I don't actually want to talk about who the secretary is. I want to talk about um, Biden and the $15 minimum wage. Um, Biden came yes. in, Biden, Biden talked a lot during the campaign about a $15 minimum wage and how he's going to fight for a $15 minimum wage. Mm-hmm. He's going to scrappy. Get scrappy for it. <laughs> uh, going to take him behind the, take him behind the, <laughs> the, the bleachers. Oh my God. Um, but like what we've seen is that Biden has been rolling back on that position. Oh, of course. He, he's, surprised. he's been saying there isn't enough political will for this and that there isn't. And what that's yeah. code for is Biden doesn't want to fight for it. And so he's going to let it die because the senators are not going to come together for that because like Manchin and Cinema are going to be like, yeah, lay or $15 minimum wage, um, yeah. which I think is just so revealing of just the, the lack of care for working class Americans by the Democrats. And yeah. like, I mean, the Republicans care even less, but <laughs> I think at the very least, uh, I mean, I'm not going to be upset by. I'm not going to be surprised by Biden if there is not like an immediate jump to a fifteen minute, fifteen dollar minimum wage. No, and it shouldn't be immediate. And it shouldn't be immediate. But if in these four years there is not something passed that mandates a ten year climb to fifteen dollars or a seven year, I think seven years is a good year, mm-hmm. a seven year climb to fifteen dollars, then that is a gross failure on the part of the Biden administration because. He has promised his campaign to the working class. He has built his campaign on the backs of the working class. And if he doesn't turn around and and do what he said he is doing, then um, that's that's uh, I think that's just a, a breach of well, trust. Yeah. And I think um, the whole thing we're talking about is like, oh, it's going to cost a million jobs. It's going to cost a million jobs. You know what would create a lot of jobs? Clean energy would create so many 
jobs. Clean energy is a sector that is just waiting to be tapped into and waiting for the jobs. And so I think that um, I think he needs to jump into it head first. I don't think he will. I think if he does, his brains might spill out of his ears. But I think he needs to put his foot down. And he is the president of the United States of America. Yeah. And like on both of those, the minimum wage hasn't been increased in 10 years. And if you look at when's the last time it's been increased, like tapping to inflation, it's been like 20, 30 years. Like, yep. It is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It is, it is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and absolutely living costs are different in different places in the country. And so minimum wages should be higher in some places than in others, but $7.25 is not enough to live on anywhere in the country. <laughs> That's just a fact. Then on like the clean energy jobs, I think that the Biden administration needs to do it, um, needs to work on getting more clean energy jobs um, into the market. Yeah. I think that it needs to be careful about, because I know that Kamala a lot talked about like, we're going to give all of these old coal miners tech jobs. And it's like, that is not going to happen, and that is not the solution. One of my favorite phrases from uh, uh, back when the huge conversation was about everything was environmental. Because um, that was when What's-His-Face was in the race. Um, um, he had the best environmental. The one that – the, the plan – Oh, no. <laughs> the plan – no. The plan that Elizabeth Warren co-opted. I, I'll, think, I'll think it later. I'll link it in the show notes. Um and I read an article, and it was talking about how, like, not all jobs are created equal, mm-hmm. uh, which was so gimmicky. But, I I mean, I liked it. It does point out a very crucial point is that not all jobs are created equal. Uh, some jobs will require college degrees. Most jobs don't. College is a scam. It is. Um, and yet we are in <laughs> we are literally sitting in the, the Notre Dame study room. But um, with that being said, I think it is important to recognize that, the, yes, not all jobs are created equal. I'm not an idiot sitting here telling you, you know, every single co-minor person is going to get a tech job. Every single person is going to have a job. No. People are going to lose jobs. It's going to happen. But guess what? People are losing jobs. People are losing their livelihoods. People are not getting money because coronavirus is going on and stimulus checks are being sold. You're not scared of people not getting the money they need. You're not scared of people not getting the households they need. You're scared of paying people more and hurting big companies and hurting everything else. Companies that have thousands and thousands of employees. And so I just think it's something that needs to be done. I think it's something that needs to – I think you need to look at the long term over the short term. You need to see the benefits of having a trickle-up economy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we call a reverse Reagan. <laughs> Only kind of Reagan I like. All right. So labor. So let's talk a little bit about – HUD. Marsha Fudge. Oh, a true queen, a true trooper. It's so cool that Nina Turner's running for her seat now. So one of my, I just want to talk about this being my favorite moment. Um, Fudge had wanted to be the Secretary of Agriculture, just as we had previously talked about, um, Mr. Tom. And she said it was too bad that Black Cabinet members tended to be Labor or HUD. And then what did they do? They put her in HUD. HUD. Um, <laughs> that being said, I do literally think it's ridiculous that, like, every time a president's like, look oh, at, my God. Look at my black friend. Literally, like, <laughs> like it's just ridiculous that that's something that they're doing. Um, she doesn't have any experience with urban development or at all. But she is She's from willing. Cleveland. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Cleveland's but, um, a city. <laughs> it's true. But she is willing to do whatever she needs to do. Our key issues are poverty, hunger, civil rights, and health. You know, pretty HUD-oriented. But, um, yeah, she is, um, I think, I don't know. I can't really say if I think she's going to do a good job. There's not a lot of, you know, stuff going out there. But she was mayor of a city right outside Cleveland. So hopefully she'll be able to bring some of her experience into this job. But I just think her, you know, her... um, snarky comment which i loved i love snarkiness it was a real comment and it was real and she was mm-hmm. pointing and it's out valid. <laughs> it's valid i mean what do they do they put her on high <laughs> she's uh she called them out as they did it but yeah that's really pretty much all i want to talk about i think she's iconic can we talk about our rainbow road king <laughs> oh gosh he voodoo judge in an era where 
infrastructure and for specifically like transportation, everything in the United States is literally at like what a C or a D on the on the grading scale. Our infrastructure is ass. Why are you appointing someone who has no intimate knowledge of transportation? I want a damn Amtrak across the country. And what do you give me? You give me Pete Buttigieg, who is not going <laughs> to give it to me. I want a super fast, speedy train like they have in the Eastern countries. And I want it. <laughs> and I think it's cool. And what? No. And what do you give me? Pete Buttigieg. I can't do anything with that. I think he's going to be a disaster for transportation. I I would... I would take another. I would take another road. I think that <laughs> another road. Oh, I think, okay. I think I think that Buttigieg is an extraordinarily intelligent individual who, I think, with the Biden team's emphasis on rebuild. What is it? Build back better or whatever. <laughs> whatever his saying is about building America, like it is. The next two years, because they're probably going to lose the house in 2022, yeah, um, is going to be two years where I think there's going to be a lot of emphasis and a lot of money spent on um, New Deal-type programs to rebuild our infrastructure. And I think that Buttigieg will just be at the front of that and will get all this glory for putting a road in like making the highways a little bit nicer and, you know, making yeah. some bridges. It's just... <laughs> The Department of Transportation, that's 60,000 employees, and that's – it's a very steep learning curve it's to go into this job. South Bend, Indiana, where you have – Exactly. And it's like – Hey, South Bend. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg also does not have the benefit of being a Washington insider like all of these other people who have connections they can work with, people they can reach out to. He had quite literally kind of a Beto O'Rourke moment, just with a little more momentum, and just with the president that was elected as a Democrat. Um, and so I, I think that it's going to be – a hard moment for him. And it's like, if he butchers this and he botches this, it can be detrimental to the rest of his career. Um, I don't know. Maybe last Felicity. He taught a class here too. <laughs> yeah. um, but I am, I'm hopeful that he can come through, but I am, I'm not, I'm not very, uh, I'm not very confident that he will <laughs> be. No, absolutely. At least. I, think, I, think I don't think it's a fair take. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's going to be the star of the transportation, but yeah. Moving on to I yeah I think I have a little bit of education. Um, Miguel Cardona is the uh, nominated Secretary of Education, who actually is currently advocating for reopening schools safely. So, amen he, to amen to having a Secretary of Education that believes in public education. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, was a teacher at a former elementary school and was the state's youngest principal in 2003 and then later became the district assistant superintendent. Um, but I'm very keen on seeing what safely means and what it means for Secretary Cardona and like what he's going to because, I mean, if you continue on the trajectory that the Trump administration had left us on, you're going to be opening schools to a bunch of overcrowded public schools where it's not safe for students to be there, where there's teachers that don't care if they wear masks, where you have kids at the age of five and six who aren't going to keep a mask on their face. And they're just going to be going around, running around until, you know, until it's too late to stop the spikes that are being created by these schools. Yeah. I, I think it is, it is important to note though, how important getting, especially younger younger students and especially um, those living in low-income communities to get back to in-person classes. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of ethical questions to ask about, like, how 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 do we do that in a safe way, especially because a lot of lower-income um, communities live in multi-generational households. Um, but getting those lower-income individuals into, and especially younger students, is so crucial to not only the, their immediate education needs, but to getting them a to getting them on the right track for because getting them on the right track for a long term successful um, education that doesn't mean that they have to go to college, but like getting those like four, five, six, seven is what determines the successfulness of like the rest of your life, and so yeah, we are severely lacking in how we are supporting those communities. Um, 
And like, like I think about my sister and my nieces and how at the beginning of the year they had to do like some forms and stuff to get for online classes. And my niece who's six, my sister works three jobs. Yeah. And my my um, brother-in-law works one, but is gone most of the day. Like how, how are parents in these situations where they do not have the resources to take care of their children and make them watch this, this screen? Yeah. How, how do we support them in a way that can effectively um, make sure that they are being taken care of? Yeah. Sorry for the rant. No, uh, it's important, especially when it's like you really, I mean, like, I, I'm just a very firm believer that education is is where the cycle of everything begins and where it trusts back to. And I I think, like, we've been so blessed to be able to come to a school, have in-person classes with our peers, um, one of the, like, only colleges in the country to, you know, open up for their students. Um, and I, I don't know. I can't imagine how my life would have been differently if I had been stuck in a room or stuck with – myself for my formative years these are formative mm-hmm. years and it's something that's real and you have to recognize and so i'm just hoping that these vaccines get out and that everything gets out and well that... and the new strains are concerning yes that's... Well, the pfizer vaccine doesn't work on the uh is it the south african strain it's astrazeneca i think doesn't work on the south one of them doesn't work on the south african yeah. strain. but um i think we have one cabinet member left and it's Homeland. Get ready for Homeland Security. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, Anjali, what's your opinion? Um, Alejandro. Mayorkas. Mayorkas. So they were going to filibuster. He got confirmed. But they had to break the filibuster for Mayorkas to become the um, – head of Homeland Security. It was a 56-43 vote. That was pretty much so far of all of Biden's nominees. They've all been pretty, you know, easy to pass through, even Austin. Um, But yeah, so I think there is a lot going on in Mallorca, especially regarding immigration. So they have to back up what Biden just did, where he was putting that moratorium on deportations. Um, then there's also domestic terrorism going on, which we talked about, clearly insurrections. Um, I am really hoping to see some sort of active role in condemning what happened with the insurrection and making sure that that is labeled, uh, what's the word, formally as domestic terrorism. But I think that he is the first immigrant ever mm-hmm. to lead the department, which is really swag. I mean, it's also good that I mean, <laughs> I would hope that all of the nominees are doing this, but like Mayorkas is rolling back the Trump administration's like worst yes. and most torturous policies, which is like really good. I think that I think that's good. As he should um, be. I think that there are also like concerning things um, with like, I mean, oh wait, before I get to the concerning things, it's also, let's also say that he is, he said that he is committed to the equal treatment of immigrants. I mean, he did pretty much. The like, bare minimum. He the did, bare minimum. Well, he did the pretty much art, uh, art, like write DACA. Like he was yes. one of the biggest. No, he was one of the main, he was main, one of the main architects. Um. I don't know. He, but also, what did I find? Oh, he has, when he previously served at the department, an inspector general's report found that he had personally intervened to help rich people, including Hollywood producers, oh, go Vegas off. casino owners, and the former Democratic National Committee chair in Virginia Wait, governor. Terry someone in Washington Huffley, is corrupt? Um, get around the, um, the usual immigration rules. Um, the rule is. The report was deeply damning, even quoting a witness who said Mayorkas explicitly prioritized, quote, people with money and bullied oh. anyone on his staff who questioned the wisdom of his decisions. Well, me and Mayorkas both like people with money, so I think we'll get along. <laughs> um, but, like, at least he believes immigrants should have rights. Yeah, at least he <laughs> should be immigrants. treated well. Um, but, like... An ideal world, we wouldn't be dealing with this whole immigration prioritization thing because it wouldn't be. I also think that 
I mean, it's concerning that, like, I mean, the detention centers, like, have stopped, but also, like, I mean, those are very Obama era in the same time. No, that's the thing. It's like it's a Democratic, it's a Democrat thing to put people in cages too. Yeah, but then, but then there was all this huss and fuss during Trump's four years where it went, "You're putting kids in cages," and then the Biden administration turns around and does the exact same thing. Oh my God! It's almost like Democrats and Republicans are the same people. (laughs) 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 Guys, guys, we just invented political science. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that being said, I mean. Overall, like there is so much Obama era. There are so many Obama era people nominated that were going to be confirmed pretty much that, you know, it, it's a lot to think about how not to say we're going to have an America that looks very similar to what we had under Obama, because that's not going to happen ever because we're literally like so much has changed, but we're, it, it would be foolish to assume that we're going to get anything more progressive than we did under Obama, aside from maybe like, the minimum wage and more clean energy. A but, cabinet of people of color and women and yeah. gay people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, I'm hopeful. I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful um, to see some good things come out of this. And I think that um, Biden has a lot of pressure to, to put, you know, Obama wasn't elected after Donald Trump. He wasn't elected after that type of era. And so there wasn't as much pressure on him to really bring up progressive thought. But um, I really, really briefly want to talk about impeachment because I have something to say, and that is... Hit us with it. Hit us with I it. do not want Donald Trump to be impeached, and I will explain what that means. Um, I want Trump to run for office in 2024, and I want Trump... To split the vote. And I want him to do it two well, or three more times. what if he's the Republican nominee? He will not be. Are you serious? He will not be. Why Why would you say he will not be? The Republican Party will absolutely not allow that to happen. I think they absolutely will. I don't think they will. Because so many prominent Republicans now that his era is over have come out against him. The Republican Party, they're not I think, going to. I think it would be harder and for Trump because I think he, he doesn't said, have Twitter anymore. He has said specifically that if he was running, he would be running in third party. And so I want him to – they're thinking of, like, forming their own party. I can't remember the name of the party. The Patriot Party. Yes. Basically, he first off, he should literally just be in the um, Ross Perot's party, the – what is it called? The uh, Reform Party Uh, because he literally is Ross Perot. But that's a conversation for another day. Literally. But I want Donald Trump to run. I want him to split the votes. I want him to – I want him to give – I think Donald Trump is one of the best things to ever happen to the Democratic Party. But they don't want to. They don't want to capitalize on it. <laughs> I think they should capitalize on it. I know, but like Democrats are so inept that they just cannot capitalize. Yeah. on Yeah, but I just think you have to think. I just think you have to think about the long run. Like we're reading this book about vote splitting and uh, 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 Governor Edwards, not not Edwards now, Edwin Edwards from Louisiana, instituted the jungle primary, knowing that. There would not be um, knowing that uh, if every candidate ran against each other, they would have to do vote splitting, and then he would end up being in the top, and it would kick out the Democratic candidate and whatever. Knowing that vote splitting can make one of the weakest candidates a winner, knowing that having Trump's base that will not change. Because here's the thing: if you put Trump up against a sensible Republican, you are going to split votes. Trump's base Absolutely. will stay where it is. But there are so many He'll moderates. Get 30% of the there vote. are so He'll many get, moderates. He, he would get thirty percent of the vote. There are so many moderates that didn't want to vote for Joe Biden, that wouldn't vote for Trump. He will split the vote, and you will have a strong Democratic base that will stick to the left. That I, will stick, and I just think I just think Trump can be the best thing that's ever happened to the Democratic. I party. think it's also concerning that. But but also I do want to be that accountability. Seventy four million people voted for Donald Trump. It's ridiculous. <laughs> or was it seventy four? It was something crazy. It was under the impression that Joe Biden is the mayor of Antifa, and he's just really not. Um, Joe Biden being a socialist. Imagine if we actually put someone progressive up. <laughs> Wait till y'all find out about Europe. Oh my gosh. Um, communist law, Harris. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I think. I think that. Trump's power will start to dwindle. Um, I think that Trump's Trump not having Twitter is actually really huge for actually being heard by not only his base who follows the Twitter, but like 
the mainstream media getting and in a fuss about some tweet. That's like, true. But I think if you give Trump a platform, he's going to have a platform. Like, oh, he has absolutely. money at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. All right. So just roll us out. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Idiot Soup. We'll be back next week. We'll be we'll be next next we'll <laughs> we'll be back next week with a beautiful episode. Um, and we hope that you have an incredible day. Thank you. <laughs> Adios. Bye. <laughs>